Hey listeners, it's Alex, your host of EOA Entrepreneurs of Asia, the show where we talk to founders, investors, and entrepreneurs shaping and impacting the startup ecosystem here in Asia. Today's episode was recorded back in December 2020 at a very interesting time. Back then was when we saw the resurgence of cryptocurrencies coming back to the fore after its sharp drop in prices back in 2018. And this podcast is even more relevant today as that trend has massively continued and we're seeing the second wave of adoption of crypto. What we knew in December is already vastly different from what we're seeing today. In this episode, we get to sit down and chat with TM Lee or Tech Ming Lee co-founder of CoinGecko. If you're in the world of cryptocurrency investing or trading, blockchain, there's a high chance you are already using CoinGecko services on a weekly, if not daily basis. CoinGecko is one of the largest, if not the largest by now, data aggregators for cryptocurrencies, which started from early 2014. An interesting fact for our listeners abroad, CoinGecko is a Malaysian-based company registered in Singapore. CoinGecko is a prime example that tech has allowed innovation to happen almost anywhere at a global scale. The second half of the episode covers details of CoinGecko from the features that helped it grow exponentially, identifying its business model, how the technology stack evolved over time. Towards the end, we also talk about various applications of blockchain. Feel free to use your app platform to skip around to the relevant chapters. Also, as a warning, I'm not very deeply versed in crypto, but I do my best to keep par with the conversation. For the first half of the episode, we get to learn more about TM's personality, his philosophy and approach of what led to his current day success, from side hustles to ignoring popular trends, crowdsourcing tech to scale your business, and much more. Let's dive right in. TM Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yes. So we have with us today, I guess, TM. That's right. Uh, he's right. the co- co-founder of CoinGecko. You can follow him on T-M-L-E-E on the Twitter. What does T-M stand for? Well, it's my Chinese name, so Tick Ming, but I just go with T-M because I think I used okay. that quite some time already, so got used to it. So some, some people call me by my full name, depending on which stage of life, but yeah. that's Okay, that's okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's like older friends will have a different name for you, I noticed. Yeah. yeah. So my, my Vietnamese name is actually Ming as well. So my, my right. Vietnamese name would be timing. So technically, I saw I'm TM as well. I would be TM Lee. Oh. Okay, so yeah, I think for this interview, it was quite interesting because what, one, I think we don't know each other. So our, our mutual friend, Alan, Alan Ding, introduced us. And you have done a lot of PR coverage, right, over the years? More or less. Yeah. And I, I guess the hard part about that is like, well, one thing that's nice is that there's like a base to work off. So you're kind of just working off what's already existing. And then I guess on the flip side is if no one's ever done an interview before, you know, it's like a blank canvas. So, you know, it was a little bit challenging, but I think there's a lot of good material we're going to get into. And I think I'm going to enjoy this. So I found out by researching, you are a Forbes 30 under 30, right? Yes, that's correct. I think I'm going to like you because you actually don't put that in your profile. Is is there a reason why you you, you leave it out? I don't know. I just, maybe I just forgot to update my profile. (laughs) (laughs) So does, does that mean you would put it in? I, I would, maybe after this, okay. now that you reminded me, but yeah, I just forgot. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I don't know. I always felt that people, they, they feel like they have to, to include it as a part of their persona, but I always felt it was just very unnecessary. You know, like if you're doing good stuff, people are going to recognize you no matter what. So, but you know, yeah. you know to, to, to each their own. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I feel as well. Like we, 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 you sort of like be able to show that you could do stuff and that's, that's what matters uh, in my opinion, yeah. rather than. Putting, putting it up, up there, yeah, so. Yeah, 
So I guess to, to start, I kind of want to talk about you to get to know you a little bit better. So I think, you know, CoinGecko is already well covered. I think the story is well covered. There's a lot of videos of you talking about crypto in general as well. So I just want to maybe get to know you better. So for the first question is, how do you want the world to view you? I, I sort of feel that uh, digital currency and cryptocurrency will probably gain more acceptance over the, over the next few years. It may not be the same flavor as the original Bitcoin, but people will start to accept the fact that assets will go digital. And CoinGecko has been something that I've been working on for the past six years, and I see myself doing it for a while. And mm -hmm. we, what we really want to do is uh, build a, a platform that organizes this information that is so nascent and new that people, when they look at it, at this point in time, or even like 10 years ago, they, they really have no idea how to reason it. And we want to just make it as easy as possible for people to understand it or follow the market. So yeah, what we want to do is we want to be the, the, the center of, of digital assets and yeah. using CoinGecko. Yeah. So are you, are you talking about more of the company perspective or you're tying your identity to the company? So I'm, I, I was kind of curious for yourself though. How do you want the world to view you specifically? Yeah, I guess because I've been working on this for, for so long mm. that it okay. has sort of become like infused in me. And most of my work goes to the product or the company as a whole. And every, every time, like, I'm just thinking about ways to scale the company, ways to solve the problem in the space. So I, I, I really don't know exactly, like, how I want the world to, to view, like, myself, uh, per se. But I do know, like, mm -hmm. what I want to mm -hmm. do for the world in, in, in this space, yeah. seeing that what we can provide here. Yeah. Yeah. I recently listened to a very interesting podcast where the founder just at a very young age decided to dedicate his whole entire life to AGI, artif you know, um, artificial general intelligence, right? And, you know, he, he knew it was going to be a moonshot and, you know, he didn't care no matter what, whether it's, te you know, for the rest of his life, 30, 40 years, whatever, you know, for work, if it's all going to be a failure, but, you know, it adds incrementally, he didn't care, but he just decided to dedicate that. Is that what you're telling me? Like you, no matter what, for the rest of the next few decades of your life, it's only going to be about, you know, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and that that's what it is. Yeah. So here's the thing, like, like from what I've, I've experienced, like things always change from yeah. time to time. Like if you ask me five years ago, I would probably have a different answer on, on what I really mm. want in life. Yeah. If you ask me now, I think this is what I want to do for the next, I don't know what you mean by, by long term, but for the next like five, 10 years, I, I do see myself continuing to do this for a while. After that, things may change. Like I may have different objectives, I, I may have different okay. goals or different problems that I want to solve. Just that when I look back, is that how I view things just, just change from time to time. Like I never had something that I, I, I stick to or, or rather like, I don't know like what is it that I can say that I want to do for the next 30, 40, 50 years and, and stick to mm. it for a long time or even tell like what's going to happen down the road. I, yeah. I just accept the fact that, that things are so fluid and, and you know, like, like things that used to be relevant or things that were true when we were in, in school or in college, they're not so true anymore now. So I would probably say that's like true. 20 years from now, yeah. things will always change. Yeah. I mean, that's almost like the Paul Graham response of how you should iterate your career. Like just focus on solving some hard problem. Don't, don't fix yourself to a point and work backwards from that, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. And what, what may happen in the next 10 years, new jobs, new technologies are going to appear that just never existed before. You can't even imagine, right? Exactly. So I guess, but at the very least of what you're saying is you're committing at least in a 10-year cycle, probably, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing this for the long term. Yeah. And I can talk, we can talk more about that later, but we, we always try to view it as, as a long-term thing. And there's a lot that needs to be done in this space. And, yeah. and we really want to try to, to use our best capability in our position to, to try and make that happen. Does this answer change if you think about your peers? Like, how would you want your peers to view you? Is that the same thing or is it different? Like uh, my colleagues in, in, in the company and, and stuff like that? Could be same industry, but peers could be friends, could be family, could be the, the company. Yeah, I think the short answer would be, for simplicity's sake, I would say yes. Again, they, they could have different viewpoint, but, but for me, I, I just can't tell like what's going to happen down the road and I, I'm just going to stick to this for now. Mm. Uh, of course, there are other things that actually like pop up behind my head. Like I'm mm. thinking about other, other, other global issues, but I don't think mm. I'm, I'm able to solve them now, maybe down the road. Like as, as population grow, can we, can we feed everyone or mm. as, as, Ooh. as humans start to oh, scale yeah. our life, right? As, as yeah, humans start to scale yeah. our life, we just consume and consume. But is that really what, what we need? I mean, these are things that are just behind my head, but I'm not solving this problem today. Maybe yeah. years later. As I mentioned, like things can change yeah. just that I don't yeah, see, yeah. see it now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely going to touch upon some of those things you mentioned. And just like CoinGecko though, like, and you know, just as again, I, I hate to reference Paul Graham again, but like, you know, just because you have a, a day job doesn't stop you from working on the difficult problems. CoinGecko started a side project. These ideas that you're, you're manifesting in your head. Could, you know, maybe timing is not right, just like the same story as CoinGecko, but you probably could start something small on the side, right? Yeah, as I think every time when, when somebody asks me, like, like, you know, when they, they want to start the company, I generally suggest them to do it while they keep their day job. Some people may have a different opinion, but I think that that is one good way to keep you going because if you let go of your, your day job, for example, and you're going all in on, on, on a startup or any, any idea or any project, Sometimes the timing is not just on your side and no matter how hard you push, you're not going to get that tailwind to, to yeah. see those, those small wins in order to move to the next yeah. stage. And if you keep your yeah. day job, you at least got something to fall back to and keep you mentally strong from your day job or yeah. from, from getting a salary to put on the table. So I think same is true for any, anything that I do in the future. Like I always like to start small with a niche, test it out and then iterate from, yeah. from there. Rather than, okay, yeah. I'm just going to go all in on, on, on this one thing. Cause looking back, this is how we did CoinGecko. This is how I did my other stuff as well. It's always putting, putting a little bit of effort to test the idea before scaling it up. I mean, it's a very Silicon Valley idea kind of, right? Would you say? I, I, I'm not sure. Like, like the Silicon Valley model is about, you know, get your idea, raise the seed funding, go all in, make it or break it in two years, go for the next round. That's kind of the, the, the perspective that I have yeah. in majority yeah. of uh, Silicon Valley company. Yeah. I would say that's probably the Silicon Valley VC version of that. On, on the flip side, you have those stories where it was just, okay, just because right timing, but then, you know, it was just a little garage project that just happened to be the right place, right time. And then, you know, start exponentially scaling as, as, you know, the product market fit kicked in, right? So, and I guess in that kind of respect, I was, that's what I was thinking. You know, it's more like you guys really had no expectation going into it. And then it kind of just, and even for a while, you probably thought it was going to fail for a few years, right? And you didn't go all in until it started to start kicking off with the first surge of Bitcoin, right? Yeah, I, I, I guess like when we started CoinGecko, or when we got into the crypto space back in 2013, we sort of see that it, it might be a global thing. Like it may be a platform of the future, kind of like as big as the, the App Store Gold Rush, but we just don't know when that will happen. Like back in 2013, 2014, the market was really, really small. It's a small niche community interested in, in this kind of things. There were a lot of 
experimentation that when you look at it, doesn't sound like an idea. Like a lot of the ideas that were done today in the blockchain, back in six years ago, when people were coining those ideas, you thought like it would never happen. Like it's no one's gonna, yeah. no one's gonna buy into those ideas. But it, it looks like things got much faster. I, I don't know why. Like like 2017 really really caught us off guard that people got mm. super interested in all these like like fundraising, smart contract, which. I think I think the bubble was was a bad thing in in a way, but it was also good in the sense that people learn from from the mistakes. And now we have companies that are much more fundamentally strong, no, no, knowing what works, what doesn't work, and then build up from there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean that that definitely makes sense. So, so in a sense, what you're saying it was as you described this kind of bootstrap journey could could be some aspects of Silicon Valley. Not really, you know, it's not really the VC story, but it's the other flip side story of, you know, two entrepreneurs just focusing on a tech problem. And I guess one of the interesting points is you, just like Facebook, you probably didn't didn't know how big it was going to get. Like, I guess, imagine back then, 2013, could you have imagined the amount of scale and traffic that you're receiving today? Um, how, like back, back then, how big did you think it was going to get? So, not not big, to be honest. Like, <laughs> we, 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 again, like we did as a side project, uh, we were like the, one of the smallest player in whatever that we are doing, like the data aggregation yeah. space. And we just wanted to solve a very specific problem. At that time, CoinGecko was a sort of like a fundamental data aggregator for cryptocurrencies. Like people were all talking yeah. about prices, but they're not talking about how values accrued to all these coins. And we wanted to find a, a way to figure out like yeah. what accrues value. Like, is it the developer yeah. involvement in the project? Is it, because the, 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 the project has a lot of community members vouching for it or, or, you know, plannings about how these currencies can, can take off uh, over the years. So we thought like this could be some of the metric that, that we can look at. But of course, over the years, things change and we evolve according to, to the change in time. But yeah, at the time, we just really wanted to just solve a very niche problem. And even, even then, I think that the hot thing at the time was, was fintech. And we were, mm. we were sort of like eyeing on that, in, uh, that space for a bit. We wanted to see how. Yeah how we could bridge. So, because Bitcoin is sort of like equate to fintech, at least back in those years. Mm. And we wanted to see yes, how, yeah. how we can bridge that because that was what VCs are interested in investing in. And that's also what people are talking about. And we thought like, yeah, maybe that's something, a direction that we should, we should take, right? Like try to bridge the traditional world and this yeah. uh, Bitcoin yeah. world. Yeah. So, but we didn't take that, that direction because we learned some things along the way and ended up looking at something else potentially and sticking to what we're doing for now. Yeah. That's interesting. So like you were even... I mean, like, because pe people are always talking about chasing ideas to then trying to create the value. I mean, like, so you were from bottom up following a certain pain point and solving to create value for that specific pain point. But you were also almost pulled in another direction to kind of follow market trends as well. Like, what, what pulled you back to on track then? Like, why, why did you remain focused? And how, were you sure that was the right move? Or how were you thinking about it? Yeah, so in, in retrospective, like, if you ask me now, I think following trends... It's a bad idea for a few reasons. Number one is you're almost jumping into a, a red ocean, right? Because okay. there are just so many, so many people who are in this trend and yep. you're just jumping into trying Correct. to capitalize on that. And se second thing is, so like going back to at the time, like why did we decide not to, to follow the trend was we joined a few like fintech hackathons, like myself and, and Bobby, my, mm. my, my partner then. We, we were joining a few hackathons. We were talking to, to banks and players in this, in the fintech space and we, we realized like how difficult the space operate. Like, like even for myself, I come from a software background and I'm very used to fast iteration, you know, yeah. built without permission sort of thing. And when, when yeah. we fall in, when we go into a conversation with, with the fintech players, we realize that 
we gotta we got we gotta make sure that all these things are checked like even deployment you have to deploy on the premise so it's very yeah. different than the kind of playbook that we are good at so yeah, yeah. we thought like maybe this is not the kind of game that we can probably ace in so mm. that's why we decided to continue in the crypto space where things are so nascent and we spend more time in, in, in that space instead I mean, essentially, you were sticking to your competitive advantage, right? And yep. and you just thought you probably would be able to get more traction that way because you would probably lose by chasing the trend, I guess. But at the same time, you didn't really think it was going to get that big, which is very interesting. No, it, it didn't. Like, yeah. I, I think it's in, in 2015, 2016, when Bitcoin price went down from $1,400 to $200. I mean, in retrospective, that's small mm. in today's yeah. price. But it almost felt like, that is going nowhere. And we, we were almost in the brink of, of selling off the, the company, selling off the website, yeah. uh, but we couldn't get any buyer. Like nobody wants to buy it. A so, blessing in disguise. <laughs> yeah. So blessing in disguise. And then we're like, okay, if nobody wants to buy it, then why don't I just maintain the site as is mm. with whatever minimal features and, and just fixing the bugs. But as I was fixing the bugs, suddenly I'm getting like a surge of traffic as the price of mm. Bitcoin continues to go up. Yeah. And then slowly we feel like maybe we are onto something. Like we, we didn't really yeah. do that much. Like we didn't spend anything on marketing. We, yeah. Everything is organic. We have like SEO, we invest in. We have some content that we wanted to put it out. So, so these are all like organic stuff that pull the user in. And seeing that, that search in traffic gives us an indicator that, you know, we're onto something and we should start to invest more of our time into it. Eventually yeah. we go full time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, to, to be honest, this sounds like the stories, this is like a, the wet dream for, for VCs. These are the types of deals they're looking for, right? Like, just organic, no spend, exponential growth. You know, I, I'm sure the users are spending a lot of time on your website. Across 2013 to now, like, I guess early on, there was no one interested in buying. But I'm sure by now, you must have been courting a lot of offers. We, we are, yeah, I mean, we're definitely in talks with a couple of guys, I mean, a couple of players. But I think at, at this point in time, like, like I said, we... We have a long-term plan on where CoinGecko should be, mm. and we want to yeah. continue that that plan for for now. Mm. But yeah, obviously, right now, the, the as the space gets more and more validated, more and more mature, yeah, people true. understand yeah, like yeah, what yeah. we're doing. Like I think back in in 2014, 15-ish, back back in the old days again, there were a lot of other Bitcoin companies that were doing some fundraising, and you know they raised some nice amount of fun, planning to do yeah. certain things in the Bitcoin space, and then within two years, they they, they closed down, right, because they failed to. Yeah retain their runway before the bull run happens. So assuming that we raise funds at the time and we spend yeah. all of our money before the 2017 bull run, we would have also like shut, shut down. Our business, yeah, shut right? down. So that's like yeah. one potential risk. Second one is, again, like when we were pitching, not really pitch, I mean, we didn't really pitch to VCs, but we talked to VC about our product, uh, CoinGecko in, yeah. uh, back then. Like they, they weren't too interested. Like they look at it as a content <laughs> website. It doesn't Wait. scale. There's, 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 it's advertising business. It's not, not fancy. Wait, so where we were, were you like, looking okay, though? Yeah. Was was this in like locally in Asia or abroad? Like like I said, we didn't really pitch. We just talked. Yeah, just talking. People yeah, yeah, who yeah. Were, yeah, yeah, and yeah, both both locally and and some opportunities in in, in the valley as well. Like they, they were and, and this and this was across the board. No one was interested. Yeah, no, no one's interested. I feel that I'm sure they're kicking themselves in the foot right now. I mean, like I think only with the recent run things have flipped, right? I'm sure you guys are at this point, uh, if not the biggest, one of the biggest in the world, right? For for what you guys are doing. And, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so I mean, I think, and that's, that's I mean, that's a, a cautionary, t- and that's like the one thing I guess investors have an existential 
issue to deal with, you know, passing up on things that they don't think is relevant. And then somehow a year later, it becomes like one of the biggest things, right? So, yeah, I think, um, I think that happens like, most yeah, of the time. Like, yeah. you can't, yeah, yeah, that happens most of the time. Like, you can't foresee, like, even, even right now, like, like I, I don't know, like, when new competitors come into the space, I get kind of scared as well because yeah. it, may, it may look like a bad idea. But mm. <laughs> we have to always let our gut on, like, like they they can yeah, really yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. like flip things around. I mean, so, yeah, uh, yeah. You, you guys experience like a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Things that sounds like a bad idea is an indicator of danger. I would say. Sometimes. I mean that, that that's the whole thing with power laws, right? The things with the power laws, like because it all we're talking about, you know, venture returns of you know compounding value. It takes about ten years plus fifteen years to unfold. But the first seven years, it looks flat like a curve. But then all of a sudden. I mean, it could be one or two years too, right? But like all of a sudden that curve is just, you know, skyrocketing. And then something that seems stupid is, is, is great. You know, so I guess that's one of the cautionary tales for investors or founders. And it almost sounds like, you know, your method is definitely a very valid and almost somewhat foolproof way. It's just a matter of timing, right? I, I think the timing was probably the luck factor. This could, you guys could have been doing something for another 10 years and then it happened, right? So uh, I guess like yeah. the, 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 the Justin Khan story with, Justin TV and then Twitch, right? That took a very long journey, well, you know, crawling back into obscurity from a, a niche and then finally finding the big thing and the right timing for it to take off the technology and gaming, right? So I think that's a, a good part of your story. You know, that's very interesting. Yeah, I think and, we kind of, yeah. And the truth, and the truth is that yeah. we are ready for 10 years. I mean, when yeah. we did this, we are ready for 10 years. So I think as long <laughs> as you have that mindset, right? You can, yeah, you can yeah. stay in the game. It's like, it's like a game of poker, right? The longer you stay yeah. in the game, you're going to get like good hands. You can put your strategy in and, and yeah, exactly. let it play. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, but the thing is, this poker hand is like a 10 year game and a one in five chance can happen, but you have to do it across 10 years. So if you're like mm -hmm. a few years in or you're raising money too early, or if you're just giving up within five years or less, you know, you're not letting that one in five chance happen. And if you roll a dice, one in five happens quite a lot, right? It's just you yeah. know, the, the periods are longer. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. The mindset is critical and that's, Something I've come to terms with maybe after nine years of venture building, you know, doing things more from the opposite end, you know, top down, spend a lot of money to, to, you know, buy things in a region, which in some sense, Southeast Asia, because of lacking infrastructure and talent is kind of required in some certain aspects. But like, it's nice to hear the flip side of the story that, you know, something like CoinGecko could do the other way around bottom up and it work out, you know, and I guess then the only thing I guess that's unaddressed in, in this discussion part then is how do you view that luck factor? You know, how do you accept it? Do you feel you did everything right? Or to what degree do you think there was this luck that things started to take off finally? I think the luck factor plays a huge role. Like I think a lot of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. do not admit that yeah. luck is the major thing, but I, I do. And I think it's not just like the time. I mean, it's, yeah, the timing is one thing, but a lot of things that happen, Around CoinGecko revolves around luck, like meeting the right team members who then join us, events that happen that allow us to capitalize on certain events to grow the company. So, you know, a lot of things is, is like sheer chance timing. And uh, I yeah. absolutely embrace that. But of course, you need to do that. I, I still believe that luck is, is a major factor, but you need to do the right thing to, yeah, to sort of like take advantage of luck, right? If you're not doing anything about it, then even if luck comes, the opportunity yeah, just misses just it. Yeah. So, yeah. so. Staying in the game is one way of capitalizing on the luck. Trying to analyze or anticipate what, where the market is going and then pulling the levers accordingly and then use luck mm. as a, as a wave to, to yes. push, push yeah. a company forward. Yeah. To accelerate it. Great. Great. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we kind of definitely skipped ahead. Let, let's talk more about you again. What, what's your favorite coffee and why? Favorite coffee? Ooh, so many, huh? <laughs> I, I'm, so at one point I was really, really interested in coffee. And ah, so not, not I anymore. 
No, no, as in like super interested. I wanted to work yeah, as yeah, a yeah. barista. I mean, now I'm still interested. So I go for classes for fun, right? Because I never <laughs> yeah, get to yeah, live yeah. my dream. But back then, I wanted to work in a barista, as a barista and have yeah. the chance to go deep and, and understand everything about coffee. But uh, because I'm so busy now, I've accepted the fact that I'll just like understand the surface, the surface mm. level of things and just enjoy like, like I see, I see. great coffee, right? And, yeah. and I'm, I'm very much of an explorer. Like if I'm in Malaysia, I don't mind drinking kopi, right? If yeah, I'm in is, yeah. Vietnam, I don't mind drinking the, the Vietnamese coffee drip. When yeah. I'm in Japan, there's so many like, like third wave coffee shop. I don't mind like trying sure. it all. So I know there are some coffee lovers who say like, you know, I will not take Robusta. I will only yeah, drink yeah, yeah, correct, correct, correct. I will yes, only yes. drink a certain type of coffee. But for me, I'm yes. more of an explorer. And but of okay, course, my I daily see. coffee, my daily coffee has to be Arabica kind. And I'll just make them myself. Like I order the beans from, from a vendor and then, Every, every week, they'll just deliver and then I'll just ground it up and, and make mm-hmm. either like an espresso or if I'm filling it, a latte and, and things like that. So I have a coffee machine at home that I just like... Okay. So, so you're, yeah. even, you're even more of an explorer in the sense that if there's no black and white, you know, I must have black coffee or white coffee. You drink all, mind. actually. Okay. I drink all, yeah. And you, and you don't judge uh, one way or the other. I, yeah, I, I just enjoy them. I, I mean, I would say it. that, yeah, maybe I, maybe I would drink less of it, but I wouldn't say like... Unless the coffee is really bad for, for, for some reason, like it was made poorly or, yeah. or had like some things behind, I would say no. But generally, I would just like, yeah, I'll have less of, of this. Because there's sometimes okay. I would still okay. crave for certain kind of coffee. Like the Vietnamese coffee, I can't drink that every, 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 now, every often, right? So sometimes yeah, I would say, okay, okay I'll, I'll just have, have some of it, yeah. How do you think your, your, your philosophy and mindset for coffee, what does that say about you as a person? Because <laughs> is, is it for the so you just try everything so you so you like to explore but it's just more for the caffeine boost you're saying or no I, I mean like I I don't know like when when I was growing up I I never liked drinking coffee but yeah, yeah, yeah. At, at one point in my life like people just keep telling you like you know drink coffee so you can get mm. like more hours in in your day ah, so that kind of okay, like got okay. me that kind of like got me into the the coffee coffee thing like I, I I mean I was a college student studying computer science and I still do like side projects. And I do programming for, for my class projects as well. A lot of yeah. my friends were drinking Red Bulls or drinking mm. uh, uh, what Monster Energy Drink. But I don't like those because it's so sweet. And yeah. I just don't like the idea of drinking energy drinks. So I'll just get my caffeine boost from, from coffee, right? So I think it mm-hmm. all started from, from there. And then that's why if you ask me, like, I, that, that sort of like caught, caught my mind in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, but other than that, I think, I think like the Explorer mode is more like a, a way to discover culture to some mm-hmm. extent. Like okay. I enjoy... I enjoy like going to places and like having their local stuff as much as possible within the, the means I can. And, and coffee is just one way to, to learn about, mm. about, about like, Definitely. Culture, for example. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean like some, some are very localized. Some are very deep in the Western world where it's like you said, third wave. Some are like, uh, it just has its own flavor, like Liberica coffee in Malaysia and Indonesia. Right. So it's definitely mm-hmm. an interesting part to way to explore culture. You, you looked fairly active on GitHub earlier in the year. It's even still a little bit now, like October. How do you manage to, contribute so much but also run one of the largest crypto platforms in the world i think i think the github one was that so so if you talk about recent times i think CoinGecko has some open source project that, okay. we, that so, we release so okay. when we contribute to uh, open source we also directly or indirectly contribute back to our features right so so that's that but but even prior to that i sort of found that that's the best way to to learn and sharpen your skill as a programmer when you put out when you put out a a, a code or, or a library that that other people use and then they start complaining at you that it's not good <laughs> it's not working yeah, i yeah. mean that's the best way to 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 learn right yeah. so I, I feel that a lot of 
a lot of programmers are afraid to take that step, that step but I think that's like the fastest way to learn. Uh, get feedback. You're almost yeah. pressured to, to improve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, crowd, crowdsourcing your learning, essentially, right? And people are going to be brutal <laughs> about it, I'm sure. Yeah, you're going to get like all kinds of, of weird like response and then they say, you know, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Yeah. Sometimes you just ask them like, why don't you just contribute and, and make a pool because, you know, they expect you to, to write everything. But I think these are all like, things that you can learn, like how you manage a community mm. of people who are using your libraries and, and things like that. So yeah. it's been a fun experience, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, so, I wish I had some time to work on open source, but... Yeah, I mean, so like, it seems like part of CoinGecko, uh, a portion of it is open source and also part of the whole GitHub experience is personal development. How much of strategy is going using open source for CoinGecko's development and growth and what else? I think it was very relevant in the earlier years. So okay. when, when it was just me and Bobby for the longest time and we never had any hires and I was only hiring like, like my friends who are doing part-time to help us like in some parts of the code. And then I, I saw that there is this Hacktoberfest, right? Uh, mm. That's organized by DigitalOcean back in, I think three or four years ago. I can't remember when was the first time they did it. Uh, and I saw that there's an opportunity for, for me to get some help from, from the outside world because I can't like code everything myself. And one of the help that I need was basically plugging our platform into all the exchanges, all the crypto okay, exchanges in the world, right? Because yeah. at that yeah. time, I think we were only plugged into like 15 or 20 exchanges and they were like 50 to, to 60 and, and more and more just keep popping up and yeah. we couldn't write them. So so we said, okay, you know, the Techtoberfest and we have this GitHub project. I've laid down the documentation on how you can write your own implementation. And then we got like everyone contributing into that, that source code, which they could then use for themselves. And then for us as CoinGecko, we will also use that uh, for ourselves as well. So that was like, I think the, the, the one, the one moment where we make very good use of the open source, basically because we never had any engineers, full-time engineers, uh, working on this thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could imagine for some specific types of engineers that might be a little bit crazy. Some, some engineers I know are very controlling. They, they need to have, you know, certain format and style in a certain way, but it seems like you're opening this up to so many people. And then you're actually using it for the main core product for yourself. How do you manage all the different contributions and different styles? And is it a mess or how does it, does it, how does it end up being cohesive? I, I still do have some of that. I mean, I, I still, I, we, we, like, even, like, yeah, even internally, we do like code check yeah. and we have yeah. lint and make sure everything is formatted. But yeah, at that time, I really don't have a choice. Like okay. uh, I do okay. review the code, but when awesome. I can make some changes, I will do it. But I just don't have a choice. Like I cannot write all the integrations myself or, or, or even by, by getting people to come in and, and do it, right? So there are some times that I just like close one eye and just merge it and as long as it works okay. for us, it does the job, we'll <laughs> yeah. figure out like later on. Yeah, so I mean, there are some, part, some parts of the code that I, I, I know that we cannot cut corners, but for this, it's not too complex. Like we can always I fix see. it again later on. Yeah. yeah. And in that kind of respect, this was beef. So this activity of the hackathon and, you know, crowdsourcing, the code base and scaling before the first Bitcoin bull run or when was this? I think it was early 2016 or end 2015. So it might be either mm, than the right start, before. but we don't, we don't okay. have a clear indicator. Yeah. We don't have a clear yeah, indicator okay. that's a bull run, but okay. we see uh, maybe an uptrend. And that's also maybe why programmers are coming in to help us out because mm. of the uptrend. I, I don't know, but. So early uh, adopters yeah, maybe. Yeah, if I recall correctly, somewhere earlier. Yeah. Okay, very, very interesting. So same, awesome. It seems like, man, like the whole story of CoinGecko was a series of right choices and good timing that really kept just compounding over time. Could be, yeah. I mean, retrospective, like yeah. I said, like timing yeah, and, and luck yeah. is, is, I embrace yeah. it like completely, yeah. 
Okay. Um, I want to pull an idea from one of your interviews I heard. You said something along the lines like technology is not inherently evil, but the man behind it may be. It's the man itself may be, right? So where do you think this is actually right and wrong? Yeah, I think that is quite true to to some extent. I mean, the reason why I say that is some part of me feels that the next decade is going to be it's going to be a weird one. Like I, I think when 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 I was growing up in computers, I never foresee that how powerful mm. all these tools can be. Like you look at social yeah. media, it started off as just a, a way to keep connected with friends. Even like like emails or centralized services that you use, it's like yeah, it makes your life convenient. But all this data that that goes behind all this data collection and and things like that, it almost feels yeah. like. It, it, it can be used for something much bigger. And, and same is true for, for blockchain technology, right? Yeah. Sort of as a way to, to solve certain problems, but it's always a double-edged sword to, to any technology that comes in. It's always a way to use it for good and a way to use it for bad. And I think as a as, as human race progress, we always find ways to, to balance the two. There's always yeah. like people trying to make sure that technology, the good outweighs the bad, but that, that is always going to be the case for, for most technology. So, some part of me feels that, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid like 20 years later, we, do, we can't figure out a way to, to manage this. But my optimistic side feels that, yeah, we, are always, we always adapt and, and improve things regardless of, of where the direction of technology is going. So, so yeah, so your viewpoint and philosophy essentially is that, you know, there, there is good and bad. You, you really can't get rid of, you know, them completely, but technology and the good ideally will prevail at the end of the day. So we shouldn't be too afraid of all the risks and downsides that that may happen, right? That is my optimism optimism cap. Say, yeah, that's your optimism behind, behind me. Yeah, behind me, telling me that oh, twenty years from now things are going to get nasty, right? You can imagine what kind okay. of uh, dystop- dystopian world you would yes, be living yes. in. Yes, yeah. yes. So, so you're not in the camp of you know AGI and Skynet taking over the world and it's going to be doomsday for us. You're not in that camp. I I, I try not to, but something's whispering <laughs> to me that that it, it, it's coming. <laughs> oh, you think so? Really? Something's whispering to me, like like. Like we, we just need to try to bring the power back to, to, to the people to some extent. Yeah. Like do not try to allow consolidation to a single powerful entity. Like like that's that's yeah. the only way around around this, I feel. Yeah. Uh, speaking about the, the future of humanity, so before we move on to CoinGecko, the, the main section, I the only thing I want to talk about in your past work, and I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, was your work on Spencer. So what exactly were you doing with Spencer and what was the, the potential impact? Yeah, this was also an interesting one. Like I, I left my job in, in Singapore, went back to Malaysia. And around, what, around what time? This is early 2014. Like I already okay. discovered Bitcoin and, and I was just building a few side projects. And yeah. I think CoinGecko was also started off as a side project as well. And then mm-hmm. an old friend uh, who I used to, to work with when I was uh, studying in the States, he reached out and said like, you know, they needed some help to build an agriculture tech product was really new to me. I, I didn't know much. And then he just spent some time explaining to me like the vision and, and where this direction is headed. So I said, okay, uh, I'll just give it a shot. And I was just working remotely with this company that's based in Indiana to basically sort of like build yeah. a platform to analyze like the soil, the weather, for this, this so that agriculture companies can more efficiently use data to increase their, their yield. Yeah. And yeah. that was quite interesting to me because I, I never really see myself working in the agriculture industry or ag tech at the time. Yeah, but yeah. it was a fun one because it's, it's, it's basically the same concept of, you know, using data, using things that you already know as a software engineer, but sort of like 
bridging it to the yeah. agriculture world. So it's kind of similar to the fintech problem. Like you have incumbents that you need to work with, which is the farmers, the growers, the the, the large yeah. corporate that are selling the the, the the beans and stuff like that. So it was pretty yeah. interesting learning experience, if you ask me, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I spent about two to three years working remotely for them. Yeah. I mean, it's a very interesting idea. And I think maybe if you had fully pursued that, that might have been something too, because are you familiar with the Climate Corporation? I think at the time... I do, but now it's probably at this surface, surface area. Is yeah. it like the, uh, the, the mapping company or something? I can't remember. What. So they started focusing, I think, on climate issues. They also then eventually pivoted to agritech. This, so this was co-founded by David Friedberg, uh, very famous in Silicon Valley. And then eventually the company started doing like agri-insurance as well, as well as other types of climate solutions. And they eventually sold to Monsanto for $930 million. So it was a, a massive sale, right? I mean, and this is kind of pretty early on. Maybe it's probably the right timing around for, for when you were looking at Aspensa. My question then is like, how do you think about agri-tech space now? Because you were earlier talking about, you know, how do we feed the future population? How do we, and, and, and I talked to a lot of investors in Southeast Asia, and there's a, quite a few investors very interested in raising funds specifically for agri-tech because, you know, Asia is still far behind. Do you have any thoughts on this or is it just long gone? Again, I, because I don't spend too much time on this, it's more of a yeah. surface back of my head. I, I, I sort of feel that I, I just don't know whether the future of, of, of food will have to be... Okay, so, so this is not... I mean, it relates to food, but not agriculture per se, but there's a huge demand for, for meat, right? And, and the, the cost of production for, for meat is, is expensive and... Well, not expensive because it's subsidized, but, but it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to scale because you are limited by the space that you have, right? And then the people yeah. are trying out lab-grown lab grown meat and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's like, like besides the point, but I feel that the part that can solve this problem would be plants, like, like plant-based uh, food. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's just something at the back of my head that I don't know. I'm trying to find like what is it that in Malaysia specifically that, that we can grow at scale that we can mm. sell to the world. I, I don't know exactly like, what type of food. Like, it could be mushrooms or it could be some, some, some kind of, of, of plant-based product that if we can leverage on, because like, Malaysia has always been an agricultural country, and, yes. But we never really like leverage on that capability. I didn't well, study uh, enough, like what, yeah. what, what would be the, the, the best thing for it, but it would be great if there's something that we can do it there uh, at scale and, and sell it like, to the world, for example, and other countries uh, surrounding us. Itself. Yeah. yeah. And essentially diverse away from palm oil, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. Diverse away from, from palm oil. Yeah. But it looks like we're addicted yeah, to yeah. the palm oil. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so just very loosely, you still, loosely interested into the space. So I guess if anyone knows about agri-tech, maybe they can get in touch with you then. Teach me. Yeah, I, I need yeah. to get up to speed in this, in this space. Yeah. Can, can, can you pull an Elon Musk and run two companies then? Maybe. I have to try. Maybe. So, so you would be open to the idea maybe, right? Yes. And that's like yeah, you I said, you would it. probably, you would start as a small project, you know, see if there's any pain points, let it, you know, yeah. gestate. And then eventually if it comes big, it comes big, then maybe you do, you know, two big companies, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, early in the past, like, I, I work, I juggle between like three to four side projects like mm. to see which one work and yeah. the one that works you know i spend more time at it correct but yes. i think the problem right now the problem right now with coin gecko is i don't know if that's the old playbook work because i'm just spending like way too much time oh. of course we're trying to grow the team and and make sure that we can you know delegate stuff uh, i mean it's an ongoing process i mean for that extent and then also like this the industry just keeps growing and growing and yeah. changing and I, i'm always like trying to anticipate and understand like where we need to uh, steer our product to so yeah. i don't know if the old playbook work but yeah, I'm spending a lot of time on, on yeah. CoinGecko right now. Well, let's 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 get into it. So that's we're we're into the CoinGecko section. CoinGecko is a market data provider for cryptocurrency, 
right? Tracking over 4,000 tokens. At this point, I don't know. Is there more than 300 crypto exchanges maybe? Mm -hmm. If you look at the similar web data, it's ranked 3,240 in the world in terms of most visited websites. In the US, it's ranked 4,494. In the finance sector, it's ranked 63 in the world, which is uh, pretty crazy, right? So it, it has received a significant amount of traction uh, and visits, uh, and that, and from a similar web perspective, it, you're talking anywhere from 20 to 30 million visits a month, right? So from from going from a side project to nothing to being one of the largest go-to platforms for crypto, that's a, a huge achievement. I dug a very obscure fact, which I don't know is true, from Forbes. They said you make three million in revenues. They didn't really say time frame or, you know, month. I don't know if you want to confirm that, but essentially that's what CoinGecko is. Did, did I miss anything? Yeah, I think most of them are publicly. Yeah. You okay. found it publicly somewhere, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And then I guess that your main competitor would be Coin Market Cap, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So then one of my friends, he's a very active crypto trader uh, based in Malaysia. He's also a CTO of a company, but he spends half his time trading crypto. And he said he prefers CoinGecko because of the APIs and the availability to pull data very easily. And he has this kind of distrust for coin market, coin market cap because it was acquired by Binance, which is tied to China, which he doesn't really trust the data. How do you think about this? Is this you know one of your advantages, you think? Or how do you think about how this uh, user feels about your product versus uh, coin market cap? Yeah, so so I think there's there's two points there. Uh, the first one is the acquisition. Like CoinMarketCap was acquired by Binance, I think earlier or middle of this year, and that yep. kind of like caught me by surprise as well because Binance is already a very big player in the space, and then they're buying another like big player which is major competitor for us in in the data acquisition space. So that by itself merged to become like a much more massive player. And and the thing is that yeah, when when you are a data aggregator aggregating data from various different exchanges. The, 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 the viewpoint is that you have to be an independent player, mm. right? You, you, because we don't do any trades. Like we, we send users to the place where you can get the best price or find the tokens that offers the best order book or the spread. So, so when that when the acquisition happened, a lot of users decided to, to make the switch. I mean, not everyone thinks the same way, but uh, a good yeah. portion of them felt that, yeah, maybe I'll support an independent player. So we got like a huge like search of, of users from, from that, from that event. Uh, and I think same is true for for like your friend. I mean, I mean, he he certainly had had that same viewpoint. So yeah, that that's the first one. The second one is on on the API, right? So I think it was a deliberate strategy for us as well. Like we mm. had our API, our API like back in uh, twenty fifteen or so, like early stage. But it's mainly a private API for uh, university researchers to okay. to use no. data from us, and we yeah. never really want to open up because if I open up, I have to maintain this. Public-facing data, yeah. which you know could, 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 could go wrong or it could be badly designed. So we only did it much, much later when we decided to build a mobile app for ourselves, and we needed mm. an API that our API would then uh, be plugged into the mobile app. And we thought, like, okay, since there are not that many APIs out there that are available for free, and there were a lot of experimentation in the space, like people building apps or services, and they need uh, market data, and if they don't really have a business plan because the blockchain space is sort of like new and, and you don't know how to turn it into a business and I think it was at yeah. a bear market as well around 2018, 2019 where the price of Bitcoin went up from 20,000 yeah. down to like yeah so we thought like why don't we just do this to help other developers you know plug into their app for experimentation and you never know like what great will come out of it so so that that itself got a lot of developers to, to switch to our API which in turn helped us with some marketing and now like our API is sort of like powering like a lot of the, the dApps and yeah. the apps out there. And we have a very huge responsibility of 
maintaining and making sure that it works. I mean, first of all, we have to be responsible with the API because we are using it ourselves from the mobile app. But now, other other bigger clients or other yeah. bigger users are using it, so we have to make sure like it's always up and up and running. And and that's like one of our, our internal like OKR, like making sure that the API yeah. is like nine nine point nine percent up. Because if we go down, then the rest of the apps will will go down as well. In the future, there might be other ways that this kind of data is being served. But at this point in time, like this is like one of the easiest way to to pull data to to prove a concept, if you will, from developers. I mean, this this almost sounds like to me like so like you you made this feature that I mean, did it? Re- I would assume it really helped with scaling, maybe exponentially even your user base. Is that fair to say? Indirectly, I would say. So, so yeah, indirectly, yeah. When, yeah, when the developer integrates the, the data, they may share it with their friends about yeah. our, our company. Because at the time, we were player number three or four. So we were working our way uh, up to, to getting more people to know about CoinGecko. And so that, that's one way. Like Developers start sharing it through word of mouth. Second is the developer likes a, the data. Yeah. And then he, he sort of like attributes us, like, you know, powered by CoinGecko, mm-hmm. and which is something that we try to ask developers to do yeah. it. And then when, the, when other users use the other apps, they see it. Oh, okay. Data price come from CoinGecko. I'll just click on it, and then it comes to our site, and then they learn about our yeah. product. So, a lot of all this indirect marketing, I would say. Network. That, it's a network. Kinda, it's a network. It's a network effect, right? Essentially, you built a feature that massively scaled up, and I guess the the, the technology held up, your your coding held up, and it's powering a lot of the the market today. Which I think, really honestly, probably makes you a very, if you could keep powering more of the market, you have like a little. A niche monopoly that people are not looking at, which makes you a great acquisition target, right? And this, this story almost sounds to me like, I mean, like there's this another small Malaysian company that was probably responsible for hundreds of millions, if not billions of user growth for Facebook that was acquired, the contact importer, right? Mm-hmm. So on my episode five, one of my friends worked at Facebook, Isaac, he worked at it for, for pre-IPO. And then he worked on the, the company that was acquired from Facebook. And essentially that was responsible for scaling massively users for them. You know, it almost, it almost sounds very similar to me. Like it's a very parallel, you know, I, where you kind of built this for researchers and then, you know, it kind of indirectly had this network effect and it's helping power more and more. You know, I think almost, you know, honestly, it feels, it feels like, you know, that's the right way to kind of follow if you can keep getting that market share and owning it uh, aside from the data and connection, you know, and then I guess to me, then it, this begs the question, how, how are you monetizing that now? Because I would imagine the more and more you power, the more your cost is stacking up, right? Yeah. So, so currently the API is free and actually we yeah. plan to make it free forever. Like, oh, forever, uh, really? Because of, yeah. As long as we're running, well, like we want to make it free for that, for that, for that use case, right? So, so, so currently the, the API is subsidized by our core business. Like, I mean, we make money through advertising. That's, your, that's your core. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. our, our main revenue generator. So we're subsidizing the API in, in, the, in the sense. But we're, we're starting to get a lot of requests from larger clients, for example. You know, they're, they're, they're users of the API and they say, you know, I want a higher, I want a better rate limit. I don't want to be like, like throttled. Mm, and then okay. I want more data. I want, you know, I want a bunch of things. Well, for example, they want SLA. So, so we sort of like carve a, a new product there potentially, which we are kind of working on it to, to sort of have a subscription. And we didn't want to jump into subscription or, or enterprise client at the get go because for a few reasons. Number one is we will have this constant pressure that this becomes a major product when we are not ready yet at the time. So we were a small team. We only have like, say, five engineers, for example. We are, we're not ready to commit to a paid API. So when we do it yeah. for free, then it almost felt like, okay, we can take our time to, to improve and fix according to the needs of ours and also mm. some of the, the developers that, that feedback to us. Like, there's no pressure for us to, to keep pushing yeah. the API. Second is if you start charging for the API in, the, in, in day one, 
your, your largest clients are going to dictate the direction of the API. Because you also mm, want to build oh, it for scale, true. right? You don't want to build it for yeah, just one yeah, client. Yeah, so yeah. if you have if you secure a deal with one client, then it becomes almost like whatever that he or she wants in the API becomes your public API that other people can see, which is not that's a good point. Want, yeah. For example, right? So yeah. So that that yeah. that's one of the thought process as well. So so now we think that we are we're kind of ready. So we're exploring that 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 direction as well as one way to well, sort of like monetize the API. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting learning. I mean, I think the first thing is like, if you want a product to grow like really fast and exponentially, make it free. So I think, I think that's something really wise you kind of hit upon and that seems to be working. And I think that the mindset of keeping it free together is interesting. Maybe that will power more future growth as adoption does continue to grow, hopefully. And then I guess the other thing though, you know, you're, you're jumping straight to subscription, which I think is the natural one because subscription in the past five, 10 years is very popular. But on the flip side, Open source is a very profitable, you know, free and open source is a very profitable business too. We're talking like, you know, like I think Red Hat, I, I'm not a tech guy, right? So, but these guys make billions of dollars if I'm not mistaken, right? So that's another potential way to monetize, you think, or? Yeah, um, definitely. It's, it's just that maybe our products are not geared towards that yet. Like, I think it, it mm. takes a little different kind of uh, company setup to monetize from open source. Like you need to have, I'm not sure how Red Hat makes their money. Is it from licensing or support? I, I can't remember which one. Because I know some I, I, I think open it, source I think it's support. I think it's support. They, they, they give yeah. that stuff for free. Right. So they give that yeah, stuff for correct. free. But if you want the, the, the pro feature or you want support, then you, you pay for it, which kind of worked as well. But I, I think based on how we're running CoinGecko right now, I think we are not cut for, for that yet. So we're looking at other yeah. sort of products uh, outside of open source. Which depends how you want to scale the business. And it's like, you know, retaining your identity and your soul or like say, say if that's your strategic move, then you could approach a VC with this kind of vision, which to me makes a lot of sense because I mean, there's, there's big money to be had in, in, in open source in that kind of sense. And it's just like, right, you need, you need the money to kind of retool, restructure, hire more engineers, and then you can kind of attack that strategically. But it depends how you kind of view the space and your own vision of how crypto unfolds. And also like timing is another factor too. So you could, you could make the same, mis- you know, maybe you avoided the mistake early on, but you might make a mistake where it's too early and then, you know, you structure it the wrong way and then the trend doesn't happen. Right. So I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an interesting exercise though. Yeah. Like I, I think. There are there are many other like mistakes that we have made, like or, or at least like decisions that we make in the company that that has a bad timing. I think one of the example that we did was what well, is a bit of tangent, like there's this thing called a non fungible token, which is basically okay. tokens tokens that are that have unique characteristics. So rather than like, okay. like Bitcoin, where every Bitcoins are the same, they are like cash. But for these cases, yeah. every token has maybe like you can think of it as a baseball card. Uh, or Pokemon like a game for, 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 for games for games right it, it could be for games or it could just be uh, art artwork like you okay. have an art yeah. piece that you can tokenize it and that's unique oh, right correct so okay. we, we saw that this space is definitely going to grow and, and even like like last few months there was some surge of interest and we wanted to play a, a part in this like we wanted to have you know some, some, some sort of a product that relates to this space but it was too ahead of its time like we did it I think in early 2019 or 2018 Keep it around for six months, seven months, and then we just couldn't like like continue anymore. So, I mean, those are some some there are some incidents that that we some decisions that we have made that didn't didn't go through the right right timing or uh, we didn't like yeah. stick through long enough. For example, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to follow up on that, then so like a huge amount of work probably was built like you built CoinGecko to make it as easy as, as an effort as possible for people to pull data to be manipulated, right? And then maybe you could help us walk us through how you conceived the tech stack. How did you think about the technology and how did that evolve over time? Maybe in a layman's terms, <laughs> maybe from the earlier yeah, times to uh, now. So 
so the funny thing is that I, I never actually saw myself uh, working in the financial sector. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not exactly finance, but, but to some extent yeah. it is, right? So, so when, when, I, when I got in, when we wrote our first version of, of CoinGecko, I, I actually never knew, like, what's candlestick. Like, when I look at a candlestick, I, I get, like, <laughs> I get scared, right? Because uh, I don't trade. <laughs> and, and I don't know yeah, too much okay, about okay. all this, like, financial stuff. Right? I don't even know how to store those data uh, properly. So that was, mm. like, like, way, way, way back. So it was yeah, written in a, in, in a way that I have no preconceived... Yeah, I have no preconceived notion of... Mm. So even, like, the database yeah. modeling and stuff like that, I just write it in a way that I think it makes sense to me. Okay, okay. So, of course, over the years, some, some things have changed and whatnot, but I think that, that sort of, like, gives you a fresh pair of, of eyes in the space. Like, even, like, CoinGecko itself is mm. quite an unconventional branding in the financial space so we decided to go with it to, to make it fun and make it more relaxing so I mean in, in any case like when we, the, the first version of CoinGecko was a very simple like you're pulling data mm. from different places not, 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 not too much like just enough for us to keep it running for free to test yeah. the, the idea of pay like a very small amount and then over, over the years obviously we had to switch over to like DigitalOcean switch to AWS yeah. and then now we have like more, more infrastructure in place to ensure that, that it's, it's stable but even then I, I would say that the stack is not complex like we okay. try to write it in a very simple way or, or in a layman way like any engineers who come on board should be able to get up to speed and i think that's also like like the reason why we when we wrote the code we never had this preconceived notion that you know it's going to be finance it's going to be complex and, and you know, mm. write it in a certain way so yeah i think i think a lot of the issues past issues were solved like like in the last recent months all the technical yeah. debts and all the legacy stuff but of course there's always new things coming out and then you start introducing more more legacy stuff mm-hmm. and more 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 depths again. Yeah, so so in general we try to keep it in a way that our team members can can understand when they join the team. Mm-hmm. So I know like some engineers like complex solutions but we try to to steer away from from that. Yeah, keep uh, it simple as possible. Sure yeah. Yeah. What mistakes did you make along the way then? And in in in, 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 uh, in this, this in deciding the technology and how you're going to structure it. I guess I guess the thing about technology decision i wouldn't say the mistake is very costly because mm. we are building it iteratively and okay our, our, our way of practicing is we launch it as quickly as possible and then you know improve it over time right so if yeah. you were to make a mistake halfway through we'll just say okay let's just like scrape the back scrape the back end and just rewrite it but you know yeah it'll still look fine and the, the front end yeah. um, so a lot of the mistakes weren't too costly i would say of course like later on in the in, in the company like we realized that we also wanted to launch the product with some marketing and that that includes mm. some some strings attached right like you can't just iteratively yeah. launch a feature because you need to, to coordinate with marketing and, and make sure that you make, I, make make an explosive like entrance in whatever feature that you're building so i think that one is if you huh. it, it's a little bit costly in that sense but even then, yeah, in yeah, retrospect, yeah. It's, it's not as costly as other, like launching a, yeah. a rocket to the to the moon or, or stuff like that. Yeah, right? Correct, Which, correct, correct. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and we still have not made like very, very big technical decisions. I think like some of the things like infrastructure, like should we move our infrastructure from what we have right now, which is simple, and invest in something that is more resilient but complex for engineers to understand? Or maybe like locking in ourselves into a certain vendor? Mm, uh, I think these correct. are more yeah. expensive decisions that, that we are yet to solve, like make it. And... and we can still live yeah. on without those decisions. Yeah. yeah. And so essentially you've been shipping small bite sizes really fast. Anything you shipped, you could go backwards on. And I, I guess in a sense, you know, and, and you're talking, this is throughout the exponential scaling, which means the product was able to keep, keep up with the robust demand. And you're still putting off, I guess, any major things that, that may be harder to undo, I guess, essentially is the answer, right? Yes. Yes. We try to yep. like 
postpone that as, as much as we can until we are very, very absolutely sure. Like, like if you use a, a, a cloud technology with vendor lock-in, then you're stuck with it. Like you have to Correct. pay more, yeah. for example, or you exactly. can't change. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So then is this the exact advice you would give to other engineers or CTOs facing similar technical decisions, you know, during exponential growth or even before exponential growth? Should they be following the same kind of pattern you guys are doing? I think it really depends on the, the company's CTO or whoever who is managing the, the technology yeah. and how they perceive things. Because I think every every programmer will have a different mindset on how they perceive these things. But for me, is I, I would if, if I were to like suggest to someone is to avoid any sort of lock-in because you want to maintain that flexibility. And if you're going to use a locked-in technology, like do the the the, the cost benefit like properly because it may seem it may seem easy like right now, but as you scale your company, if you're lucky, you scale your company. Then if you want to move out. It's going to be a huge exercise. Like, like it's going to be hard to find. It's going to be hard to find engineers who can do the migration or mm, do it correctly. True. And then you might have downtime or you might have instability. So I think a lot of the crypto companies in the early days, when they started off their exchange, it was built in a way that it can scale. So when the bull market happens, a lot of the older exchanges uh, had frequent downtime, and then they probably lost a lot of customers to other uh, exchanges that are much more competitive, competitive and have like better technology, for example. Yeah. Mm, okay. How do you think about technical debt before product market fit and after product market fit? So I, I think when when somebody builds a product and there is going to be a technical debt, the yep. person building it should own it. Like he should be aware throughout the life cycle of the product or the company and always bring it up to the team or make a point to, to, to fix those those problems. What, what happens a lot in often times is that you, you sort of like introduce a technical debt into the product and then the team member left. The team member leaves the company. And then the other person who's inheriting the <laughs> okay, debt yeah. have no idea how to do it. And that it will just snowball into, into debt code. So I think that's like the dangerous yeah. one. Like if somebody is going to ha- introduce a debt, you probably want to own it completely, which is why like founding team with a technical background is most likely fine with technical debt because the founding team will probably be around for the next three to five mm. years and make sure that by the time yeah. when the company scale, the debt will probably be soft or be, be, be resolved. So essentially what you're saying is, is, is the most important aspect is to own it and make sure it's well understood. And I guess if you're before product market fit, you're okay of collecting the debt as much as possible just to, to at the expense of, you know, pushing business priorities or would you rather pay it off earlier or, you know, and after product market fit, you have to be more careful. Ba- balancing act, like, I think now in the late, later stage of our company, yeah, later stage of our company right now, like we have, we, we have to keep in mind about, about scalability and, and not introducing too much debt because we, we want to keep moving fast, yeah. right? So if we keep moving fast, yeah. uh, whatever, whatever feature you're testing, you're just going to accumulate more and more debt. But I think in the early stage, it's, it's okay. Like you can just introduce some debt, yeah. test it out, and then just, just keep going and, and, and fix it along the way. But as long as the team members are aware of it and they will come back to fix it and they're going to be in the, the product lifecycle for a long time, I think that's, that's mm. okay. Yeah. Then it's fine. Okay. Then how do you think about platform risk? You mentioned this, right? Especially for big technical decisions. Like I would imagine even now, uh, a, a big part of your infrastructure relies on certain platforms, maybe like Google BigQuery, right? Like is, how do you think about that? How much risk do you have on one platform? And is that like an ex- existential problem for you or how do you deal with it? Yeah, I think as, as I mentioned earlier, like we try to keep our core product not have vendor locked in. So even if we use like proprietary platforms like Google BigQuery, for example, those are things that we use, but we can live 
without in a very worst case scenario. Without it. Yeah. In a worst case scenario. In a worst case scenario. But I, I think we decided to go with that based on some technical constraint at that time. And mm, that's like the best way to go. But as yep. far as the core product by itself, we are not having that, that render lock-in just yet. At least we haven't run to, okay. that, to, that, to that stage just yet. So, I mean, yeah. despite using some like certain proprietary platforms, it's not a be-all, end-all. I mean, it's probably going to make things a lot worse and a he- more of a headache, but you could still survive probably. Yeah. So it's more like at the time, we couldn't think of any other better solution. And yeah. we didn't want to have a spend engineering effort to use other kind of technology that allows us to archive data, for example, in a way that other users can easily look up. So we just think that, okay, BigQuery solve our problem now. It will solve for the next three years. So let's stick with mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, then how, how do you think about the UI and UX and how that's going to unfold? I, I look at it, it looks like a very simple website. It seems like functionality is the main thing. Um, how, how, did, how did that unfold for you guys and how do you think about in the future to improve you know, design and, and the user experience? Yeah, so actually for the longest time, we never had a designer. Like yeah. the entire early version was, <laughs> was just a bootstrap web page and even today, there's still some element of bootstrap in it. So it, it, was, it, was, it was done in such a way like, you know, just get to the point and, and give the user what they want. Yeah. But I saw, of course, as mm-hmm. things evolve, like right now we have our first designer, uh, in-house designer who just joined us like uh, last year and nice. he's sort of like leading, he's sort of like leading the entire charts. Like, like it's, it's not just about users coming in to look up the price. It's all about the whole experience, right? So if you look at, if you go into mm. CoinGecko, if you have an account there, there are a lot of things that you can do. Like you can, you can add the coins to your portfolio. You can collect this thing called candies, which is like a loyalty program, which you can then redeem. Oh, interesting. Uh, goodies. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's all about engaging the, the users and keeping them, you know, engaged in the site so that there's more things that they can do. So I think over, over the next few times, we're going to spend more time on, on this sort of adding more like, yeah. add-on benefit to the users. It seems like you've gotten to a point at the stage of the company where you can look at it more holistically and start to maybe look at, you know, different types of teams and how they interact from product to design to engineering to be more of a well-rounded, polished product, I guess, right? Yeah, that's try to create that, that full-fledged experience because like in, in yeah. I think in the earlier year, the crypto space was, was quite new and, and no one knew how products would look like. But as, as over the True. years, like things get validated and you, you start to have, users start to have some sort of expectation of what they, they want to do on, on the website, for example. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk. Let's like you know for the last section, let's talk about crypto and some applications. Is is crypto just in a very circular kind of way a transference of fiat, but you know something that's a fiat that's more scalable in terms of efficiencies and distribution and transactional costs? Is that is that how you view it, or like how do you think about you know the crypto? Like, to me, it's just at the end of the day, it's going to come down to just people shifting to one thing or another, or or is there something I'm missing? Yeah, so I think they're talking about cryptocurrency. Then you are probably spot on. Like, yeah. is this a new kind of? Okay. It's a new kind of currency that exists in a form of cryptography and blockchain, which allows you to sort of like, in a decentralized way, transfer the the value from 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 point A to point B, for example. I think in the last few years we are seeing blockchain by itself having the capability of smart contract, allowing you to use mm. this like a like a platform. So you can think of it as a operating system that you can build okay. apps on top of it and, and do things with it. So some of the other examples, other than just building a token or a cryptocurrency that you can transfer value, is like I mentioned earlier, you can actually tokenize artwork or you can tokenize music. So like, say, for example, if you want to sell a unique piece of art, digital artwork, because right now, if you are a digital artist, your options are maybe putting it on a website and then there's no way to say that this 
artwork is unique or you put it on Instagram and then ad revenue goes to Instagram, for example. But now you are able to sort of like become an artist and tokenize your art and put it out on an auction in a virtual gallery and someone else can pay for that, for mm. that artwork. And every time mm. when this artwork uh, gets resold, the, there is going to be a commission that, that goes back to the artist. So if you compare that with the traditional world of, of art, it's much more efficient, right? Like you don't have to go to the oh, auction yeah. house, do the auction, and then make sure there is a record that someone maintains and make sure that, you know, this art is, is legit and this art transfers from A to B and then what would happen to the commission. So, so I mean, that's like one, one example of, of what you can do with, with smart contract, but the, the possibility is endless. Like, like people are using it to, to do lending, people are using it to, to trade with one another without the need of an exchange. So, so it's almost felt like the possibility is endless once the infrastructure is in place and once developers sees that they can build interesting stuff on top of it. Well, let's, let's go back to the example of art. Are you talking specifically digital art? And Because what if it's an, uh, a physical piece of art manifested? I mean, it, that sounds so, like there's going to be a disconnect, right? Yeah, so, so I think the, the early traction that we're going to see is going to be digital art. And that's where, if, if there's going to be an early explosion in this market, it's going to be digital because there's no disconnection, right? So everything is, is settled on the chain. Uh, you can verify it, you can you know, work on it, you can use it. But when you tokenize a real-world asset, like a real world, uh, a physical art or let's say a, a house, that's where the problem lies, right. which is where other, other bodies or governments do not recognize what's happening on, on the blockchain until maybe like that's 10 years it. later when, when government starts to think that you know, everybody has assets on the blockchain and okay, we can start recognizing it. So I think the regulation has not caught up with it. Regulation, laws and mm. legal and regulation has not caught up to, and to make sure that you can tokenize something that, that, that is real. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. So uh, I guess then the wider use case for art would be more like commercial art or like kind of like uh, all these stock stock image kind of creations, right? There's people creating content and art that could be tokenized. And I guess, I guess it just makes it more efficient in the end. Or is that is that something that I'm not understanding? Yeah. So if you're looking at stock images, I think if, if this were to take off, I mean, I haven't seen any use case for a stock image yet. There are people who are pitching for it, but it didn't really take off. I think it's just because the stock image itself is has no has no like speculative nature to it. Like you're just buying stock mm. image to to use it, right? Yeah. We are looking at, at at abstract artwork from an artist himself, who, let's say, he's he's well known for for his artwork, and then he minted a unique version that's original originally from him onto the mm. blockchain. And you can trace through the entire history of where this artwork started off, yeah. who bought it. And there might yeah. be some value that gets accrued along along the way, right? It could, yeah. like some people say that you know a a, a t shirt that's owned by some celebrity is worth more than a normal t shirt, yeah. uh, just because you know like the the, yeah, the yeah, history yeah, yeah. of 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 that transaction. So that yeah. that is one example. I, I, I well, then it's just simply, I mean, like, and I think well, I'll talk more about this later. But for in this specific case, it comes down to just the supply and demand of that digital art, which is, I guess, just at this point, a little bit questionable, like, you know, who's going to be paying a lot of money and demanding, I don't know, maybe, I may be wrong, maybe I don't know the space, maybe there are a lot of people paying for specifically digital art, but I, in my mind, I don't see how I would pay so much money or value a specifically something digital, unless, yeah, maybe it's from like my favorite artist who has a physical aspect to it, but maybe you're right, maybe there's, there's something more to it. So are, are you familiar with Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore? Yes. 
right? So like you have uh, like a normal distribution of, of adopting technology, right? So you have your first 2.5% are innovators. The next 13% of distribution are early adopters. There's like a little gap that you have to cross over. And the, to the the first 34% will be the early majority. Then you have late majority, then the laggards, right? So it's kind of like follows. And the way technology adopts, Where where is crypto along this adoption curve? Are we, are we at innovators still? Are we at early adopters? Uh, do you think we've crossed over to the early majority, but very early or definitely not late or, you know, not late majority? I think in terms of real product and services that are being built, I think it's more on the innovator side because we're still seeing so experimentations. Like, like the digital art is an experiment, right? We don't know yeah. whether people will, will, will really want to use this, but there are artists who are making money out of, yeah. are making a living out of just yeah. like producing art okay. content. And, and these are experimentation that we can see, you know, will it worked out well or, or not. But in terms of, the, the the ownership of, of crypto, like 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 the, the interest of owning crypto, it, it's all gonna be it, it's going to swing. Like I can't really tell, like because back in 2017, you, you had this thought that maybe it's going to go mainstream, right? But because when the price corrected itself, because the bubble burst, right? Then 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 yeah. all these mainstream people start to lose interest. And it goes back to correct the innovators and the early adopters. And then and then when yes, the price correct. goes up again, then you see like you know it's going to mainstream again. So I think it needs to, for, for crypto to, to cross the in, uh, mainstreamism, there needs to be yeah. stability and there needs to be a killer use case. Like you have to have like in your phone, being able to easily like use your, your Bitcoin to, to buy things or have your savings in there without needing to worry about how to keep your Bitcoin safe. Because right now it's still not easy to keep your Bitcoin safe yourself unless you trust your keys to another entity which there's yeah. no difference than using a, a digital uh, wallet but yeah we're yeah. still in the early stage in my opinion for this so, so is that what you're so is that what you're talking about when you say there are scalability issues for bitcoin and crypto that are bottlenecking its value yeah so the the scalability issue for bitcoin is is more so so, so, so bitcoin itself has some limitation that when you when you transfer a Bitcoin to someone, uh, it takes like 10 minutes for, for it to confirm yeah. and you know, it takes like maybe one hour to, to be absolute sure that you know this is the Bitcoin that gets transferred. So people are kind of using it as a store of value. Like kind of like when you mm -hmm. buy a, a gold bar, you keep it and you don't transfer it around. So yeah. if you look at Bitcoin in that sense, I think there is going to be value. But if you look at Bitcoin as cash, it's going to be a, a long shot because we have not... Mm quite figure out how to scale the number of transactions. But there are so other cryptocurrencies yeah. out there that, that tries to overcome this kind of problem to ensure that you know you can trans transact it much more much more frequently. But th that's one part of it, right? The second part of it, which is not really scalability, but the user experience of it, is just so difficult to to use. That people are trying to find other ways to ensure that as a mainstream user you come in, you don't have to worry about your keys and you can still back up your 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 coins and, and retrieve it when you need to. And, and mm. these are things that sort of like impedes the adoption. But I think over the years, we'll see incremental improvements. Okay, so essentially you're saying it's a, one in one aspect, it's a supply side issue. It's not as easily available to get the coins. It takes time, right? Then there's an the infrastructure missing that, that just makes the user experience better. And that's also probably tied to a wider, you know, adoption needed for people actually believe in it as well, right? So there's there's a lot of things probably bottlenecking the value that, that need to be unlocked. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of it. And I, I feel that the the only the only catalyst for this will be people realizing themselves that they need to look into cryptocurrency. Like, that, that yeah. it's, it's, 
when somebody gets into cryptocurrency because of price, they're not going to be in it for the long term, and it's not going to end well. And also, if Correct. people people get yeah. into Bitcoin because they were told by someone else, it's not going to end well as well because you don't really understand what you're going to. So there needs to be some key event that happens in your daily life or whatever that got you like, oh yeah, maybe I should look into this for X reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I heard you say something very similar. And, and my, my analogy to that is it's a coming to Jesus moment, isn't it? It's just a matter of faith, right? <laughs> so essentially, it's, it's really, again, a transfer of fiat at the end of the day. I guess more specific in a case for currency, right? So like, which is why I always really struggled with cryptocurrency because it's just a more efficient way of transferring currency, but the current system's not broke. That's really hard to move institutions unless something shocks the system. And you lose it, right? I don't know. Like a major war happens and then maybe people will just switch to, to crypto, I, I, you know, because all the financial banks are blown up or something, right? So, I mean, I, that, that was like one of my main issues. But I think what's maybe more interesting is what we've talked about, like with other crypto applications, other blockchain applications, smart contracts, games. I recently talked to one of my friends. Apparently, there's like these types of card games. And I know card games get really big. Like uh, I, I started playing Magic the Gathering again recently. That's like 20 million users, right? There's betting, crypto, right? People are tying coins to actual like betting. There's more nefarious things like uh, money laundering, right? So I, I think what it's very interesting that there's a lot of different, really big niches that are fragmented, right? Do, do you think there's a, a way that there's another layer that could pull like, so say there's widespread adoption in these niches, but we're talking, you know, millions of users in each niche. Is there a way that there could be a third party that unifies this into a system that makes it actually able to finally transfer the fiat over or how do you think about about the fragmentation or is that the wrong way to think about the future of crypto yeah i, I think the, the funny thing is that when crypto started it was it started off with bitcoin right and it was only yeah. a currency and then as as it continues to expand itself it sort of like expand like vertically Bridges. and horizontally yeah yeah and it touches into every different niche that people are always finding ways to use uh blockchain and crypto for a certain use case and there will be a small niche in every we expect like just how you explain that i think in terms of bridges at the end of the day everything comes down to to the token itself like there's always going to be a token involved in all these different use case and this token could be yeah. you know either the value transfer within the platform itself or uh, a crew of value or representation of an ownership in something in this niche yeah. so at the end of the day it comes out the token and i think the fact that the blockchain itself is the is the settlement layer there is going to be a likelihood of of things bridging one another. So I think like, mm. I, I think I, I heard a podcast recently, someone talking about, you know, when, when, when you host your, your application on, on Amazon Web Services, your application cannot talk to another app that's also on Amazon mm. Web Services that like you go like Correct. one full circle to settle yeah, something. Yeah, but, yeah. but now sure. you can just do, you, now everything is on chain and you can just like bridge them eventually. So uh, you probably don't need a company to, to do this bridging. Like, like you can just adhere to a certain protocol and if that breach is necessary, then you can uh, combine them. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially, I mean, well, because people create different blockchains, right? So you would still need to connect to different blockchains. Is it be something similar to like another API call or what, like, what, what does that look like? I don't know the tech side. Yeah. So, so there are a few school of thought. So there are some camp who thinks that there will only be one blockchain. The yeah, rest, correct. Okay. Because of power yeah. law, right? The one blockchain will yeah. take the majority market share. And the other school yeah. of thought is there's going to be multiple chains and Eventually, I think if that is the world that we live in, there will be a bridge yeah. between the chains. Mm, so if you want okay. to transfer your asset from the Ethereum chain to another chain, you will transfer it onto something like a smart contract that locks it up and then it will mm. issue a new token on the other side. And then you can then do something over there. So 
this is also something that in the early years it was mind-boggling, but now it becomes quite quite normal to to transfer assets between yeah. chains, and you can do that. Yeah. So I guess the most important note to end on this then is. You know, look into blockchain. You know, have a come to Jesus moment and join the movement, right? Yeah, I mean, some some people view this space like a like a cult or like a religion. Well, your early adopters, which kind of is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think almost everything starts off as a as a cult. Yes, right? correct. So, yeah, but I, yeah. I would say okay. like, like do look into it and yeah. see if it relates to to what you know about yeah about finance, about things that you are familiar with, and then try to draw that bridge, and maybe you would. Find 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 some opportunity yeah. or something to get involved. Yeah, it does, you don't have to be a programmer to get involved. Like like True. I said, like if you're a digital artist, you can get involved right away. If you are a cut, uh, you love to play trading cards. There are trading cards that are on the blockchain that you can get involved and, and play some game. And there are games that also yeah. pays you to play that game. So and, and speaking of the power laws, you know, if if it's not popular now and it does be, if you get in now when it's not popular, when it does become popular, it's probably a good opportunity to to reap some value in the long term, right? Yeah, that's correct. Well, perfect then. Okay, so before we close up then, is there anything you want to plug that should, you know, what should we know about CoinGecko? Anything new coming up? Any products or services or any other topics you'd recommend? Yeah, so do check us out at coingecko.com. We are a price tracker and you can go in and, and learn about different cryptocurrencies. But the other thing is that we also have a, a book called How to DeFi. So if you want to learn about decentralized finance and how blockchain is used to sort of like build another kind of alternative uh, financial platform, we have that book that you can earn it for free by becoming our users and collecting those loyalty points. I think that's the best way to get the book, but or you can okay. just like, buy the book from, from, from our Amazon. Store, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you get it on Amazon or your store or better or not, just join CoinGecko and get the book for free if you're interested. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for your time, yep. TM. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode of EOA. If you enjoyed the content, please share it with your friends and family. Spread the love. Help write reviews and give feedback. You can always contact me at alex at entrepreneursofasia.com. Listening back to TM's story, it's clear that CoinGecko's success was due to a few very critical decisions that were a combination of conscious and unconscious decisions that always allowed options to grow and doors to open as they kept solving the problem. Timing, luck, and preparation were truly at play. However, we can take this framework and apply it for early stage startups. As we heard, products that scale big can come from side hustles. However, make sure the decisions you make are not locking you in too early. Some of the examples we heard were avoiding platform risk and committing to technical debt early as long as it's manageable. You might also want to consider things like picking the right co-founding partner or investors as in the end you're pretty much marrying both of them when this happens. I didn't get to ask TM where he thought this direct or indirect framework kind of came from, but I suspect it was a culmination of experiences from before and also due to him improving his approach and methodologies as he learned more. He openly admitted that there were plenty of mistakes along the way, but nothing that would sink the company. At this point, the only devil's advocate is how to innovate further. When will this playbook stop serving them? being guarded and not committing too strongly one way or another? When will they need to actually commit to more platform risk or onboard a big investor if needed? Of course, they are always considering these options, but it will come with a very different mindset. Switching from bootstrap mode to even bigger scale mode, this is especially relevant as crypto gets more and more adoption as we are seeing every day. TM says it himself, we are only scratching the tip of the iceberg on early adoption. There's no right or wrong here, just simply ideas for CoinGecko to consider if they wish to remain relevant. 
I have no doubt that they will find continued success though. I hope you guys learned something and see you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.